I'm Andrew Schwartz, and you're listening to The Truth of the Matter, a podcast by CSIS where we break down the top policy issues of the day and talk with the people that can help us best understand what's really going on. To help us get to the truth of the matter about oil prices, the war in Ukraine, and the economy, we have with us CSIS's Ben Cahill, who is a senior fellow in our energy program. And we have with us Gerard DePippo, who is a senior fellow in our economics program at CSIS. Guys, thank you for coming today. Let's talk about OPEC. OPEC Plus announced on Thursday it will increase oil supply for July and August. Do you guys think this is going to help balance out oil prices? In fact, they've actually increased in the last couple of days. So, Ben, let's go to you first. What's the deal with this? Yeah, thanks, Andrew. It's good to be with you. Um, The math is a little bit complicated, so let me step back for a minute to start. In April of 2020, OPEC Plus made the the biggest production cut ever. This was in the depths of COVID-19. The oil market was in chaos. Prices were in free fall for a month after this short-lived price war between Saudi Arabia and Russia that happened back then. And ever since, month by month, OPEC Plus has been adding more oil back into the market. It's got a framework, and it's stuck with it since. And I think they regard that as a very successful formula. And they've not wanted to move away from it. They say that sticking with this plan is helping them balance supply and demand. It's certainly been good for their economies. It's boosted the oil price. It's provided stability. It actually was a big help to the U.S. oil and gas industry, provided the floor under prices. The problem is, as time has gone on, the agreement has become pretty stale. And more and more, OPEC Plus fails to meet its production target every month until this week, the plan was basically to add about 400,000 barrels a day each month. It's moved up to about 430 in recent months. But in reality, OPEC Plus delivers much less than that. So there's this kind of fiction that these are the targets, but OPEC Plus doesn't meet it. And the reason is that some countries keep underperforming, like Nigeria and Algeria and others. That whole package, the cuts that were made back then, it was all supposed to roll off in September. So it was always inevitable that heading into the fall, OPEC Plus would have to come up with some kind of new framework, right? Because that old deal was stale and needed to be revised. What they've done this week is pull forward the end date, effectively, by saying we're going to take the the cuts that were scheduled for September and roll them into July and August. They say that they're going to add about 200,000 barrels a day more each month, both in July and August. In reality, they'll probably underperform. Maybe we'll see 100,000 barrels a day more each month. The amount is immaterial. It's really not significant. The significance of this announcement is that they're effectively telling the market, okay, we need a new deal. At some point this fall, we're going to do it. And I think what you'll see is that the countries that can actually add production capacity onto the market, which is basically Saudi Arabia and the UAE, and that's about it, they'll probably get higher targets. The countries that can't deliver and have been underperforming will produce less. That's going to be a very complicated process. But the fact that OPEC Plus is willing to move is good because it's showing that they're finally responding to the needs of consumers and that they're saying, look, we're going to engage. I mean, it's a weird situation because we've had this incredible turmoil in the oil market since February, but literally OPEC plus meets every month for 13 minutes, 12 minutes. They wipe their hands and call it a day and say, okay, we'll come back next month. Finally, they're opening up the deal again. Why do they only meet for 12 minutes? (laughs) Basically what they've said is there's no problem in the oil market. It's balanced. You know, these fluctuations in prices are due to financial speculation. We don't really see a real disruption from Russia yet. Nothing to see here. Let's move on. So is, is that actually true? They don't, 
are they really right about that? They're not seeing a disruption from Russia? They're partly right. I think it is true that the physical disruption of crude supplies from Russia has been a lot smaller than people anticipated a couple months ago, including me. You know, I think the original expectation was maybe we'd have two to three million barrels a day of production lost. That would be a huge amount, you know, equivalent to two to three percent of global demand. It's a big deal. That didn't happen. Russian oil production is starting to decline and its exports of both crude and petroleum products are bound to decline. But, the, you know, it hasn't really been that big. So in a way, OPEC Plus has been vindicated in its view. But it also has really made OPEC Plus look like they're not dealing with the problem. You know, they're not responding to the needs of their consumers, the pressure from the United States, India, China, and other big consuming countries. And it's made them look like they're just reactive. You know, they're not getting ahead of the market. And, you know, that's a problem because prices can get out of control and they can lose control of the narrative. So I think they're aware of that and we're starting to see a pivot. So you don't see any relief anytime soon for the American consumer who's looking at gas prices. In California, you're looking at $6 a gallon. In the East Coast, you're looking at, you know, $6 for premium a gallon, you know, in most places. So do you see any any movement there, Ben? It is a pretty tight oil market. Uh, it was even before Russia invaded Ukraine. Even with these high prices, the supply response has really not been very strong. Production growth is happening in the United States, but it's going to be backloaded toward the end of this year and especially into next year. So we have a lot of supply chain issues and constraints. And of course, OPEC Plus hasn't been producing much more. I do think that'll change. It's possible the Saudis will ramp up production in the fall and the UAE will as well. But basically, I think the market is going to rebalance through, you know, a hit to global economic growth and depressed demand. And we're starting to see some signs that people are traveling less and driving less as a result of these high prices. So demand destruction is probably going to help rebalance the market. We're not going to see a big supply response that's going to help depress prices. I mean, there's those who say that we, the United States, should be energy independent and we wouldn't have this problem. Is that right? It's much more complex than that, isn't it? I think the whole concept of energy independence is a fallacy. It's never been realistic for this country. The reality is we are a huge producer of oil. You know, we're the largest oil and gas producer in the world. But we import crude oil and we export crude oil. We import petroleum products and we export petroleum products because not all is the same. U.S. produces a lot of light tight oil and exports some of those cargoes. We import the heavier, more sour stuff that's processed by the Gulf Coast refinery complex. We're always going to be linked to the global oil market. Gasoline prices in the United States are inextricably linked to what's going on in the rest of the world. The idea that we can produce ourselves into energy independence or drill our way to energy independence is not true. What is true is that the U.S. has seen a huge amount of production growth in the last decade. And so it's changed things quite a bit. Uh, it means, for example, that, you know, we can be a little bit more creative about what we do with the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. I mean, the Biden administration has made this huge release of, of SPR reserves. A lot of people criticize that. But to me, the world has changed. It's not clear why the United States needs to keep 700 million barrels sitting in storage facilities in Texas and Louisiana. I mean, we're a net exporter of petroleum now. So simultaneously, while all this is happening with OPEC Plus in the United States, Gerard, the European Union recently agreed to place a partial ban on Russia oil exports in response to the invasion of Ukraine. What are the EU's goals in placing a partial ban on Russian oil? The debate has been for several months, what can Europe do to stop buying Russian oil and gas? 
which is framed as being, uh, you know, essentially financing the Russian war effort, right? So the Russian government is heavily reliant on inflows from energy exports. The sanctions, the sixth sanctions package that was just announced, and I guess is official at this point after some resistance from Hungary, what it will do is effectively ban oil imports into Europe for seaborne crude oil from Russia. So that's only going over ships, not via pipeline. That would only be effect, take effect at the end of this year. There would also be a ban on refined products in eight months' time. It also includes kicking Sparebank, which is the, the largest Russian commercial bank, kicking them off SWIFT. And then there's some other smaller things like preventing consulting services, sanctioning some individuals and some military personnel, et cetera. But, but the basic issue is you know, how the EU and the US and others are providing a lot of assistance to Ukraine, both military and economic. But at the same time, Europe is buying energy from, from Russia. So it's sort of like you're financing both sides of the war, which I think is the, sort of the crucial political issue here. So what are the larger geopolitical repercussions of this? And, and can we get the Europeans to reduce their dependence on Russian oil even more? So, I mean, I think it, after at least several weeks of intense negotiations, this is the best deal that the Europeans could get in the EU. And of course, the EU is a consensus-based body, which means if one country objects, in this case, Hungary, it can throw a wrench in the whole thing. I would not be that optimistic about getting the EU to do much more, at least in the short term, on reducing energy reliance on, on Russia. I think they sort of reached their collective limit. The U.S. has other authorities. We have unilateral sanctioned authorities. If, if we so wanted, we could do something similar to what we did to Iran in 2018, which is basically tell the rest of the world, you know, you need to stop buying Russian energy. You could phase it in. You could say, you know, set quotas and, and move it down. And if you don't, we're going to sanction you. The U.S. controls the dollar and the dollar correspondent network, which is really our crucial financial sanctions advantage. And it more or less worked with Iran, right? You can basically compel your own allies to stop buying the oil you want them to with some some waivers as necessary. The reason why that hasn't happened is, well, there's really two reasons. One is that the Biden administration has been keen on preserving the coalition, right? So they're being diplomatically sensitive to European concerns and other allied countries, say like Japan, which is very dependent on energy imports. So we don't want to fracture that by unilaterally hitting them with sanctions. The other issue uh, is relevant to what Ben was just talking about, which is that energy markets are quite tight and inflation is very high right now. And so there are, are debates of how you could achieve the ideal, which is essentially to keep exporting Russian energy, but then find a way of reducing the revenue. And we could talk about that later. But fundamentally, the, the problem is how do you ramp up the sanctions more on the energy side without further increasing inflation? And I'm pretty skeptical that that is possible. And given how high gas prices are in the U.S. right now, I, I suspect in the White House, they're skeptical of going down that road as well. Yeah. You know, I was in Europe about a month and a half ago. I was in Spain and people were flipping out about gas prices. So you can't imagine, you know, them doing much more. But, you know, I have to ask, how are they going to make up for the loss of Russian oil that they've already sustained? This is one of the reasons why it's so difficult to get this final sanctions package passed. right? And just to back up a point that was made, you know, Basically, what Europe has done is is not ban pipeline imports, which would be really hard for countries to substitute for. So Hungary, Slovakia, the Czech Republic, 
refiners that really depend on pipeline imports via the Jerusalem pipeline from Russia, and they decided to basically exempt all those. So you're looking at about 1.6 million barrels a day of seaborne crude imports to Europe. What we've seen in recent months is that oil flows around the world are changing in a, a big way. So the United States is sending more crude oil to Europe, West Africa, North Africa, maybe eventually the Gulf states and, and the broader Middle East will as well. And Russia, of course, is trying to sell whatever it can to India and China and the rest of Asia. The oil market is very fluid. It's very complex. Uh, refiners have to adjust all the time to outages and other things. It's hard to displace 1.6 million barrels a day of crude, to be sure. I don't want to downplay it, but I do think it's possible. The big question and what ultimately will affect prices is, does the EU partial embargo take Russian oil off the market or just, does it just force Russia to redirect it to other places? And if it really does take it off the market, then obviously lower supply means higher prices. A significant part of the sanctions package, which was apparently just passed, concerns shipping insurance. And it's kind of technical, but it's actually quite important because this is the part of the EU sanctions package that kind of goes beyond Europe and could affect Russia's ability to export to the rest of the world and redirect those cargoes. And the idea is that Europe, which is the heart of the maritime insurance industry, will stop insuring all shipping of Russian oil to any market, not just Europe. And that's significant because, you know, the, the maritime insurance industry is really housed in Europe and the UK, and the UK is going to cooperate with the EU on this. So what does that mean? If you are operating a tanker and you can't get insurance for a Russian cargo, it's really risky to lift it. You know, what if you have an accident at sea? What if you run aground? What if there's a collision? I mean, we're talking about millions of dollars in liability. And so that is a real way to crimp Russia's ability to export to other markets. I think the exact language is still yet to come. But that is a pretty significant move. It's not secondary sanctions. It's not that big, but it is an effort to kind of squeeze Russia a little bit more. And of course, that that harms Russia's revenue. That's the whole point. But it does have that ability to depress supply and it could drive up prices. And again, the question is, can we substitute for that? Not a whole lot of supply coming around the world so far that is big enough to, to substitute for that 1.6. So we'll see what happens with the OPEC plus deal and the, the Middle East producers in the U.S. later this year. Gerard, this, this begs the question to me, you know, doesn't this bring Russia even closer to China? It might. So get, building on what Dan was just talking about with insurance. So I think there, there's a lot of uncertainty as to what those provisions will do. I think the stronger claim is that, as Ben was suggesting, is it makes it prohibitively expensive to or risky, basically, to ship Russian oil. But if you do that, then it means that there's less oil in the market, which means prices go up. I think the optimistic scenario is more something like, it compels, say, China or India or other importers of Russian oil to provide their own insurance. So China has Sinoshore, for example, which is a state-owned insurance financial institution. And uh, there is some precedent for, for things like this in the past where it might even require sovereign guarantees because of the loss of reinsurance ability from, say, Swiss Re and other major European providers which essentially what that does is mean that if you want to move Russian oil via tankers and then you have to have a very expensive or otherwise more expensive than it would be insurance policy to do that, then maybe your own government, if you're Chinese, is, is providing, then the Chinese would, would demand a discount, a further discount on the Russian crude, right? So the ideal world actually is one where you get all the Russian oil still to market but the Russians are getting as few dollars, euros, or renminbi as possible. 
And I think the insurance ban is one way of moving towards that because it makes it more expensive. And, you know, regarding China, they talk about their no limits friendship or from the February 4th joint statement with Putin and Xi. And that's sort of diplomatically true. But economically speaking, the Chinese have not made any great concessions. They're not bending over backwards to help Russia. And so insofar as the sanctions put Russia in a tougher spot, I would expect the Chinese and certainly the Indians and others to basically push for better market terms as a result. And I think that's kind of the the win-win idea here. But also it does, as you suggest, give China even more leverage because ultimately they might be the major buyer of a lot of this oil. But I would also note, and maybe Ben has views on this, that the Chinese government is generally reluctant to rely too heavily on any one supplier, right? And they would know in particular if they're relying mostly on, say, Russian oil, that's a stream of oil that the U.S. could try to cut off through sanctions, right, which we would not do for, say, Saudi oil. And so I think the Chinese are going to be reluctant to to really make that kind of shift and, and expose themselves to that risk unless they're getting a significant discount. I think that's really true. If I could just jump in and, and add to this. I mean, the big question is how much more Russia can sell to India and China. And we've seen in the last couple of months that India has started to buy a lot more Russian crude because it's offered at a really steep discount. You know, in some cases, 30 to $35 a barrel below global prices. India is a country that is really heavily dependent on imports for all of its crude oil. They have extremely high prices. It's not surprising that they would want to do that. They've got the refining capacity to process the stuff. You know, in China, I think it's true that both state-owned refiners and the private refiners haven't really jumped at this opportunity yet. The volumes haven't been all that big. And I think there are limits to how much India and China can absorb, even with these steep discounts offered. So how is the EU going to make up for this loss of oil from Russia and potentially the other factors that you guys are weighing in as well? It's a little bit easier to deal with the oil question than the natural gas question. I think the reason why the EU is moving on this oil embargo is because they see it as easier to execute and they have more options than they do for natural gas. A lot of countries are really heavily dependent on natural gas imports from Russia, 50% or more of their total imports. It's really hard to substitute with oil because the market is more fluid and more dynamic and there are more alternative supplies. They feel a little bit more comfortable with pushing ahead. Countries like Germany and Poland have made some reconfigurations to their pipeline systems to access seaborne cargoes and redirect them from one place to another. So even though, you know, the The partial embargo doesn't apply to pipeline imports. Germany and Poland have both said that they'll stop importing pipeline oil from Russia. And this is part of a broader EU strategy to reduce dependence on imported fossil fuels in general and Russian fossil fuels in particular. They have something called the Repower EU plan, which is basically an emergency plan to get off fossil fuels, fossil fuel imports as fast as possible. So part of that is about conservation, using less energy. Part of it is about tweaking energy systems and the electricity system to operate more effectively. And part of it is about just sourcing alternative supplies wherever they can. So, I mean, the striking thing to me is that, you know, the EU tends to move pretty slowly and in a very deliberative way. Everything with energy policy is happening at warp speed now. And this stuff is hard to do, but I see a lot of commitment to do it. And frankly, I think people are willing to pay higher prices to punish Russia. So, Gerard, let's talk, turn to how this is impacting Russia. How will these sanctions affect the markets in Russia, in your view? So the question really is how much does it affect, say, dollar or euro earnings, right? So if insofar as the sanctions cause an increase in prices, it's possible that it could be a wash, right? So that's that's the concern. I think 
if you're looking out, you know, six months, which is when they, a lot of these things would take take effect, it, it's it's hard to say. I think with with the insurance issue, if that were implemented, you can imagine if there's, you know, Ben was already talking about, you know, thirty plus dollar discounts on on your old crude. If that gets to say fifty, sixty dollar discounts because of the insurance issue, it could weaken cash flows going into Russia. I think stepping back though, the, there is a debate about how important those cash flows are and whether they are the sort of sledgehammer that some of the sanctions proponents want them to be. I think looking, if, if, if you're looking at you know what, what have the sanctions done so far in Russia, one of the points that jumps out and is really spurring this debate is that Russia reported a record current account surplus in April, $38 billion. So that's essentially the trade surplus. And most of that is due to higher energy prices. A smaller part of it is probably due to reduced imports. So in other words, despite all the sanctions, uh, Russia's hard currency inflows, so to speak, have increased. Now, there are restrictions on how they can use those currencies because of what we did to the Russian Central Bank, how which banks can access them because, you know, restrictions on, on transacting with them, etc. But their sort of balance of payments on net doesn't look all that much worse. The thing that does look a lot worse is that Russian imports have declined substantially. So Russia is is not reporting a lot of economic data series that it used to. They do not report trade data anymore. But you can look at the, the mirror trade data from, from countries exporting to Russia to get an idea. And it looks like in March, there was something like a 50% decline in imports. And it looks even worse based on the preliminary data in April. So it's really affecting the Russian economy because Russia is heavily reliant on imports for consumer goods, a lot of manufacturing inputs, et cetera. They're definitely not even close to being self-sufficient in, in manufacturing. And there are a lot of reports of, you know, for example, owners of, of foreign cars in Russia can no longer get spare parts. You can't get a lot of consumer electronics. In many cases, things like the export controls have been slowly draining inventories of these inputs. And I think even if you hold sanctions constant, over the next few months, you're going to see those shortages get worse and worse in Russia. The official data suggests that consumer inflation in Russia has been about 11% since the start of the war. Whether you believe those statistics is, is another matter, but that's what the, the data show. A lot of the Russian data looks like it's like bad, but not terrible. But I think there are other series like the import series and private surveys and purchasing managers index surveys that suggest that the, the contraction is worse. Look at official Russian data, and it claims unemployment is still 4% and has not really been affected. So I don't really believe that. Uh, but in general, I think think of it as more of a, a slow burn. And I think a lot of people that are sort of calling for more sanctions because they think they're not doing enough, we need to wait and see because I think these things take time. The other counter argument, however, is that the longer you wait, the more things can adjust. So there are workarounds. We haven't seen that at scale. But if in, say, two or three months, holding things constant, if you see Russian imports rebound, then I think we have to re reassess what the effectiveness of the sanctions. So I guess the, the big question here is, will any of these actions cause Russia to change its behavior? I mean, I don't have any particular insight into Putin's brain. Um, I would say <laughs> that... Yeah. Wouldn't we all want the, just a window for five seconds? <laughs> might be horrifying. But anyway, the historical record for sanctions doing these types of things, having substantial impact on behavior, particularly like once a country is committed to a war, that record suggests that these are not likely to be effective. I think there are people pushing for more sanctions, particularly in Russian energy exports, 
who have this often implicit belief that it will somehow cause, if not regime change, at least a substantial change in Russian policy. I'm just not that optimistic. Maybe there's a chance of that. But I would say that that substantial new sanctions to cut off Russian energy exports, I am much more confident that will cause higher inflation in the U.S. and elsewhere. And I suspect those are the, the sort of probabilities and risk factors the White House is considering right now. Ben, do you, do you have any views on this? I totally agree with what Gerard just said, really. I think we constantly overestimate how much we can achieve politically through energy sanctions. And the track record is not great. I mean, think of Iran, Venezuela. Think of you know the oil for food program with Iraq back in the day. Energy sanctions are not a great tool to achieve political change. When you have leadership at the top that's kind of insulated from economic pain that ordinary people are feeling, which we've been discussing, you know, it's not clear that this leads to, to political change. So we do sanctions because we can, because we want to pressure Russia. There's obviously a, you know, a pretty strong moral case for doing it. But Russian oil revenues are soaring this year. I mean, the IEA estimated that it's up 50% over the previous year. They're earning about $20 billion a month just through oil and petroleum products, never mind natural gas. So from a revenue standpoint, it's not working yet. If we do see a bigger loss of crude and products, it will start to bite. But I think we have to be a little bit realistic about how quickly this might drive change. Are we basically going to see rising inflation, rising gas prices? Maybe they just continue to hurt us, hurt the rest of the world and, you know, keep sanctioning. Is, is that the future here? The reality is sometimes the oil market rebalances through uncomfortable, painful ways. And it's mostly about you know, the hit to the global economy and the hit to oil demand. Uh, and demand destruction is probably going to be the, the most powerful ever to kind of bring the market back in balance. Slowly, we'll see a supply response that will help as well. But I think it's going to take time. So yeah, I think we're looking at higher prices for some time to come. It's, there's a lot of risk to the upside, frankly, and not all that many to the downside, you know, aside from the recession risk. So we'll see what happens this this fall. I think there are some early indications that we're going to see much slower economic growth in Europe and the U.S. Uh, and that's probably the biggest factor that will bring the market back into balance. But it's going to be it's going to be a long hot summer. Gerard, I have to ask you, how much do you think the U.S. is relying on sanctions to solve the crisis or help solve the crisis? I think by both word and deed, it's becoming clear that, that the Biden administration recognizes that, that sanctions, you know, they're sort of a supplemental tool, but that primarily this is a military and intelligence problem at this point. The U.S. government has ramped up its military aid to, to Ukraine, which I know you've discussed on other episodes of this podcast. I would note that the president's essay in the New York Times a few days ago, which talked about you know what the U.S. would and would not do for Ukraine and essentially laid out bottom lines and strategy, it, it only mentioned the word sanctions once and it was in passing. It was clear that, that the strategy is really to provide Ukraine with the material you know, weapons and, and intelligence support to, to resist and reach some type of battlefield outcome that could result in a diplomatic solution. That's really, we're leaving up to them, right? We don't want to dictate what those terms would be. And so I think, you know, in the economic policy sphere, really, you know, econ Twitter, on which I'm quite active, there are debates on right now about how can you do 
more sanctions. And, you know, those are worth having. But I think my general gut is where we've hit diminishing returns. And if you're looking at probabilities of what is likely to actually change Russian behavior versus what are the costs it imposes on the world, I think we're probably close to the limit there of the utility of going hard on Russia because, as we discussed in this in this episode, it would disrupt energy prices and make inflation much worse with not really much guarantee that it would change Russian behavior. On the other hand, making sure that Ukraine has better weapons and training, et cetera, I can see that argument. There, there's a clearer theory of victory there to me than there is on the sanction side. Gerard, what are you thinking about inflation, both in the United States and globally? The discourse about inflation has changed a lot over over the past six months. So before the war, inflation was noticeably higher in the U.S. than it was in Europe and other advanced economies. And at the time, the narrative was, well, basically, the U.S. stimulated too much. Our rescue packages were too big. We gave people too big of checks, which then caused a surge in demand for consumer goods, which, which you can see in the statistics. And that was sort of overheating things and, and you know, it reached supply chain limits. That that would have sort of naturally adjusted over time because we weren't doing more stimulus, but then the war happened, right? So then on top of that, you had another true supply shock from on the energy side. I think over the last three or four months, the narrative has shifted away from this being about excess stimulus to more about being actually truly an energy problem. And the Biden administration has been focusing on this over the past week or so with the president giving a speech. And there was also a a, a Wall Street Journal essay talking about it. He is fully aware this is a major issue for voters and they're particularly sensitive to price at the pump. So it's one thing if you talk about the prices, you know, going through inputs that pushes up their cost at, at, say, restaurants, but people, the price they see every day that is the most adjustable is the price at the pump. And that's why they're so sensitive to it. I think, you know, to what Ben is saying, over time, yeah, you you do adjust. The economic data in the U.S. still looks pretty good, actually. I mean, there were 390,000 jobs created in May, according to data that was released today. We don't appear to be in recession yet. The data in Europe looks fair a bit worse. China is a whole other story. They've they've gone into pretty strong lockdowns in parts because of, because of COVID, and it's not clear if there's a great exit strategy there. So there are demand destruction opportunities on the horizon, but that's really the bad way to adjust prices, right? So, I mean, to Ben's point, like, I just see a lot more opportunity for things to get worse on the demand side, and that's how you get prices lower, as opposed to miraculously getting more production online, or, you know, maybe ending the war quickly, which doesn't seem to be in the cars. And so it's a reason to not be optimistic, but at least I'm relatively optimistic about the U.S. trajectory. Gentlemen, thank you so much for this fascinating discussion. Really appreciate it. And we'll have you back on soon. Thanks, Andrew. Thank you. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 